We're living in a time that we have the opportunity to make some great change in this world. What change do you wish to see? What dreams would you like to manifest in this world? I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast fighting for classical music's relevance in this 21st century. Mm, Good one this week. But why? Have you ever asked yourself why, just sat down and said, why do I care if classical music is relevant in the 21st century? Only before I fall asleep. (laughs) That's when you're supposed to have your most brilliant thoughts, you know. Is that right? As you're falling asleep and right when you wake up. I'd better start paying attention then, huh? We're going to get into that a little bit in the fourth movement today, really finding that why beyond this is what we've always uh, done. We've spent our careers with it, but even beyond that, the why. So as far as this podcast is concerned, the why is uh, because I love seeing you every week, of course. I (laughs) I was about to say the why is it's a weekly struggle, but yeah, nice to see you too. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Opus 95 of the Triloquy Podcast. For those of you who have been here since day one, shout out to you. Thank you so much for being some of our ride or dies. If you've come along somewhere in the middle, maybe even more recently, thank you so much for joining us. This show is growing every single week and we always appreciate uh, getting folks new to Triloquy. If this is your first time tuning in to Triloquy, welcome and thank you so much for giving a try. Every Every week, Scott and myself take a look at the world, sometimes news that deals with so-called classical music, sometimes not, and we put our perspective on it as professionals in classical music and some of our opinions as well. All opinions. All, and it's always so polite, isn't it? Yeah, especially during the triloquy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the uh, weather is getting warmer here. Feeling good? Record-setting day today, 83 degrees. Yeah, 83 degrees as... Uh, as a record in, you know, my previous life would, would have not seemed like anything coming from down south where it gets 115, 120 sometimes. Right. But, but, you know, today it was warmer than in L.A. and in Miami. Yeah. And after this long winter, it's been great to have a little bit of a reprise and open the windows. And, yes, it has. And, 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 and let all of the, you know, juices flow. I feel like all of our bodies are even moving better with warmer Sweating. temperatures and more sunshine. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of warmer weather and sunshine, uh, we got... Got a lot of really bright and sunny music to talk about this week. Uh, Downbeat this week comes from Valerie June, and you have some of her music to talk about today, huh? She's got a brand new release out, and there is a nice blending of styles, I guess you could say, because not only is she bringing sort of her folk blues and uh, roots sounds, uh, she also incorporates... Uh, some strings mm-hmm. in the compositions, and uh, right up alongside an 808 drum kit. So. Yeah, yeah, have a lot to talk about there. Blending of sounds also applies to some of the music I have this week. A couple weeks ago, Scott, you gifted me a vinyl featuring the Howard Roberts Chorale and some African drumming, and I put it on this weekend, and 
was grooving. So I'm gonna share that with the people. I Shout out it. to Cadence Records and Coffee. That was in the two dollar bin. Oh really? Yeah. It's priceless as far as I'm concerned. So looking forward to uh, showing y'all the blending of a purely Afro American art aesthetic and a purely African art aesthetic and how they can mesh together into something really, really, really dope. Cool. We have a really, really dope guest this week, dope guests every week. This week I had the pleasure of speaking with Will Lieberman, an opera singer changing the game out here. Uh, his new release, Dreams of a New Day, features music by black composers, some contemporary, uh, some historic. We get into um, both of that and the conversation sort of uh, centers around a really traumatic bit of black history History that is showcased on this album, so we'll get um, into that as well. Support for this opus of Triloquy comes from King FM, who will, we will uh, be giving a shout out to in the Triloquy. Um, yeah, looking mm. forward to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a huge shout out to everyone over at King FM in Seattle for uh, supporting the work and really uh, being a being a part of this. Before we, uh, did you have an announcement or anything before we got into the? I just wanted to say a quick shout out to DMX. You know, he had a a drug overdose, evidently, Mm -hmm. and that caused a heart attack. And I guess at this point, he's in a vegetative state. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so um, all good vibes headed to DMX and his family and friends. Absolutely. Before we uh, got into the first movement, I wanted to give a couple of uh, quick shout outs. First, to Sister Florence for very uh, graciously sending both Scott and myself some warm Easter wishes. So thank you so much, Scott. They are all the way in the monastery listening to us cuss and talk bad about classical music. Isn't isn't that something? It's Your so favorite impactful. Podcast it's in, so impactful. In the habit of making changes everywhere <laughs> we can. <laughs> but it was a nice note on the inside, too. It said, Easter is a time to rejoice, be thankful, be assured, all is forgiven, that life extends beyond the soil of earth. Absolutely. That, that got to me when you handed this over, and I read that the first time. I was... I'd take a few seconds to myself. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much, Sister Florence and everyone over there um, in the in the habit. Uh, and also, I wanted to give a, a shout-out to uh, the third horn of the Milwaukee Symphony, uh, Darcy Hamlin. A few weeks ago in the Triloquy, I was talking about how we need to be more intentional about playing and performing music by women composers. Right. Well, I had the pleasure of curating for the Lakes Area Music Festival a concert that featured uh, two works by women composers one of which was Portraits of Josephine by Valerie Coleman. And this mm-hmm. piece of music, of course, written with Jeff Scott in mind, requires all sorts of growling and jazzy bending on the horn. Extended techniques. Yeah, so-called extended techniques, yes. And Darcy Hamlin bodied it. So nice. huge shout out to you as well. All right, first movement. A few quick uh, naturals, based on a, um, in response to a couple things we talked about last week. Uh, first and foremost, we spent a bit of time acknowledging the voting rights tragedy mm-hmm. down in Georgia. Well, many companies have responded and publicly made statements against this legislation, including Delta and uh, Coca-Cola. I'll put an article in the description of this if you want more information. What I really thought was um, valiant was the MLB moved their whole thing mm-hmm. away from mm-hmm. Atlanta. What if every organization, what what if every organization made huge steps like that? We would we would see some things, wouldn't we? So I think so. Uh Delta was on the list. Yeah, as yeah, well. I mentioned them, yeah. Oh, did you? I'm sorry. Um and then the minority leader comes out with his statement 
saying that these woke companies should watch it because they are not going to enjoy the tax benefits <laughs> that they used to get. Let the games begin. <laughs> Let the games begin. So shout out to MLB. Take me out mm. to the ball game. Uh, <laughs> uh, I also have a, a quick natural. Did you see that? So we also talked about um, what was going on in Arkansas. Uh, legislators there trying to prevent uh, trans youth from receiving the care that they need. Well, that made it to uh, the governor's desk. And, and it was signed. And the governor vetoed it. Oh, I'm so, that's right. That's right. You Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's hot in here, man. <laughs> the government, uh, the uh, the governor vetoed it, which you know gives me hope. When we talk about being an accomplice, this is someone in a position of power, and they were like, "No, I'm we're we're not doing this." So mm. huge shout out to everyone down there in um, Arkansas who is uh, benefiting from having a governor who is not going to just bend over to this uh, this bigoted stuff that these lawmakers try to do. He signed the veto. Sign the veto. There you go. There you go. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, anyway, those are the uh, quick naturals. Getting uh, started here with a sharp, Scott, you put me on to the fact that uh, there's a film that we might be interested in seeing coming up here soon. So we've been talking quite a bit throughout the entire run of this podcast about Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the black composer and violinist who was uh, living and working and just killing it in France mm -hmm. and was also in the military. He was a, a swordsman and, you know, all these sorts of things. And evidently, the women loved him on top of mm -hmm. it all. Of so, course, of course. So he just had it all going on. So, yeah, there's a, a new film coming out. Um, Kelvin Harrison Jr. is to star... Do you know the name? I didn't, no. No, see, I'm not familiar with him either, so I want to check out some of his work. Uh, the writers include people from HBO's Westworld. They've got a producer from Atlanta, mm -hmm. the TV show Atlanta. Yep. Um, but the story seems to be focusing about around the love interests, right? So they're this trying are, to make this juicy. See, this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm a little bit concerned about. Is the music going to be really a component about, and his role in music going to be a component of it? Or is this going to be this swashbuckling black man that had it going on with <laughs> a young noblewoman and Marie Antoinette and, you know, the whole thing blows up. So that's, that's the broad strokes of the plot that we've got so far. My question to you, we have Kelvin Harrison Jr. in the title role. In your opinion, who should play Marie Antoinette? As far as like a celebrity who can be this new young uh, uh, love interest on this show. Who would you put in? Hmm. So I guess it has to be a white woman, right? It if does. we're going to be historically accurate. Mm -hmm. For some reason, Anne Hathaway is coming to my mind. Hasn't she been a princess hey, before? She has. Nice but it woman. has to be someone who might be a little... Because when we think of Marie Antoinette, we think of let them eat cake. Of course, right. falsely attributed, blah, 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 but still the legend is still there. So maybe someone we can kind of see as a villain. I'm thinking of the woman who played um, Agnes and Agatha on one of Hahn. Catherine Hahn. Good call. You think she would be a, a good, good queen, Antoinette? Um, the noble woman that is the, uh, the the girl on the side. I'm thinking Rose Leslie. Okay, and these She's, and these parts haven't been cast yet. No, they haven't said. Now, here's the other thing. For a little bit, Chevalier de Saint Georges was living uh, and and had a benefactor and living in the benefactor's home. Yeah, some uh, duke of some sort. Okay. in France. When Mozart was about 22, he was rolling through Paris. His mother died, and he stayed there for a couple months. So Chevalier and, and Mozart 
met. Yeah. Who's Mozart? He would have been about 22 years old. Oh, who, oh who's going to play Mozart? I think we just need a flat out celebrity. Like, this, just let it be Justin Bieber or something. <laughs> like, something like that. I was thinking Evan Peters. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, who's the guy on Saturday Night Live who acted like he wasn't into it and didn't care? Pete Davidson? Pete Davidson. I think he would be a cool <laughs> Mozart. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know... Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that they take the, the music component of it seriously because, you know, Amadeus was a mixture of fact and fiction. Immortal Beloved, a lot of people said that was just totally off base, so... I'm curious. This is my question. When you told me about this, I was like, is this for black people, though? Mm-hmm. Yes. Joseph Boulogne Chevalier de Saint-Georges was a black person, but still he celebrated historically. You know, we were finally getting people to stop saying the black Mozart, even though some of them it's still in this, are. It's in, it's this, in article. this article. I'll post it. Yeah, I'm looking at it right there. I'll post it in the description. But beyond that... I feel like this is someone who history celebrates because of his ability to be white, basically, to be this violinist, to be this swordsman who can uh, fit in with with society. Mm. Of course, I had these feelings about Bridgerton as well, and I know folks just loved that. I, I didn't catch any of it, but that having a black lead in that show was enough to get folks looking. So maybe it'll be the same here. See, here's the thing. The black Mozart doesn't even work because Mozart was looking up to Saint-Georges. Yeah, Chevalier was older. Right, and he was looking up, going, man, this guy's got everything I want. He's got royalty paying him for money. He's got women chasing him all over the place. He's he's going, that. I want to be that. I mean, you know, so, so, but but still, do you think, and yes, you know, considering that all of this is historically accurate and, and everything there, do you think a highlight on this black person who ascended to whiteness in that day, do you think this is something that can get the person on the street interested in, in Western, specifically Western classical music? Well, is this black character the in, you know? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that this is going to be the Black Panther of classical music. I, don't. I mean, you never know because uh, Mr. Harrison Jr. is I. Okay. <laughs> so that might be enough. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. I guess I'll take a look at it. You know. My my reluctancy is surrounding all of the think pieces that are going to come out of, oh, n- no one has ever told us about Cheval de Saint-Georges, well, even though we've been here just screaming right. his name and many others. Right. Anyway, so here's a... How, you, do you have a Cheval de Saint-Georges favorite as far as uh, the actual I, composition? I, I like his symphony. Oh, the symphony? Yeah. Let's hear a little bit of that to transition. It's interesting that that came up because I wanted to go historically European black as well this week in the accidentals. I am going to put a flat <laughs> next to this slip disc article by Norman Lebrecht. I feel like we've talked about Norman before. Have we? Probably or over these opuses. The name of uh, this article dated March 31st is... Thousands demand memorial for Beethoven's African violinist. Let's stop right there. <laughs> Help me, Scott. I'm Help trying. me, Scott. What's right. the problem? <laughs> they know that they, they're used to hearing it from me. Did, How about you tell them? So from this sentence, did did Beethoven own Bridge Tower? <laughs> I mean, that's what it's trying to that's what it sounds like, right? 
And there was nothing like that. That was never the relationship. But they don't read it out loud. <laughs> no, clearly this was just... Or maybe he, maybe Norman did read it out loud. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's accurate. Anyway, let me, uh, let me read it. So that's, that's point number one. <laughs> let me read here a little bit. He wouldn't have owned Bridge Tower. He was black himself. Listen. <laughs> more than 15... This again from the article. More than 15,000 people have signed a petition to erect a plaque in Bath, England in memory of George... Paulgren Bridge Tower, a violinist who gave the first performance with Beethoven of the future Kreutzer Sonata. The pair soon fell out, and Beethoven renamed the sonata after a more famous French violinist. So basically, all these people are trying to, you know, give uh, George Bridge Tower, a black violinist during the days of Beethoven, his flowers. First of all, I, I don't, I don't find any issue with just the summation, the the, the quick cliffs notes. It's nice of to have a memorial. Story. Okay. Where in that should he be named Beethoven's African violinist? I, that, yeah, I that know. Literally it's, make, it, it's like the people in their minds were saying, oh, well, we better put Beethoven's name in the title because that might get more clicks. You see how quick I do, the, the racism I do. jumps out in these people? Anyway, so the title aside and the racism <laughs> behind the implication of it aside, I think it's cool that, um, you know, we're talking about Chevalier de Saint-Georges, also here, George Bridgetower, that the name is... Um, saying more and more this is a great cause i think when you know the more we do this work and consider how history has been framed intentionally and mm -hmm. intentional ways maybe the story about the fallout between beethoven and bridge tower is false what were the what what are the most specifics of the story as you remember from your reading and research? Oh, that that's just the thing is I you know I couldn't I couldn't just spout off the details. I'd have to check my notes. So you go right ahead. Oh well, yeah. I mean, all all I really have, and I did a paper on this in grad school. But what I'm remembering is that you know the premiere of the now Kreutzer Sonata. I feel like if you go and do some research, he originally titled a uh, uh, Beethoven originally titled it the Mulatto Sonata or something. Any <laughs> it's some. Something, and, but you know, different times, right? <laughs> different times. <laughs> okay. Um, they they uh, played it. You know, uh, Bridge Tower bodied it because you know black musicians have been doing that forever. They uh, celebrate and go out to a tavern, and Bridge Tower says something about a woman who Beethoven kind of had his eyes on. They get into an argument. They fall out. We know that Beethoven is good about stripping a dedication. So he stripped the de dedication of this, and as the article reads, gave it to a man named Rudolf Kreutzer, who never played the piece and didn't halfway like it, but right. he just needed somebody else's name on the thing. I guess. Um, what if that story has been told to us to bend over to Beethoven being the good guy. What if Beethoven started it? What if there was a woman at the bar that <clears throat> Bridge Tower liked and Beethoven was like, oh, look at that over there. And it was actually Bridge Tower who was like, oh no, you got to put some respect on my sister's name now. Wait a minute. And then that's how the fight started. And then that's how the stripping of the dedication was. I feel like maybe we've been told this story wrong. I, I mean, consider the wrong, the wrong way we've been told every other story. That's true. But I have to lean on the fact that Beethoven was notoriously inept with the ladies. He was not very good with the social graces. Okay, well then let's say they're at the bar, okay? And Bridge Tower sees this lady and Beethoven is like, oh, I would love to just, you know, get a, 
I, I would love to get to you know spend an evening with her. And Bridge Tower brings her over. Beethoven <laughs> falls on his face because he is inept, and then going to blame Bridge Tower for it. And now they arguing. What if it's something like that? Been there. Oh, oh really? <laughs> Were you the one falling on your face? Were yep. you Beethoven or Bridge Tower? No, I'm the one. That, yeah. <laughs> I'm the one that that blew the intro. Anyway, you get my point. How I do. Maybe this story is different. Back when Drunk History was a show, I always dreamed of bringing this story on Drunk History because it literally takes place in a bar. Sure. And being a little swifty, as I like to say, would, would lend well to the storytelling. <laughs> and hey, I think we might need a remix to see. This is the movie. This is the this is maybe not a whole television series. I wonder if they could do a crossover between because Chevalier was late 1700s, Bridge Tower would have been around the same time, maybe early 1800s. Hey, maybe right. there can be some crossover. Who's going to play Bridge Tower? Mm. See, I think we would need another source. Morgan Freeman. I think we need somebody young and so like a, a, well, no, a but, Donald no, Glover. Bridge Tower would have been older though. Oh, is that right? Let's look. Let's look at some dates real quick. See now. Now we're being nerds and getting into it. Chevalier would be older than Bridge Tower. So Bridge Tower was seventeen seventy eight. Oh yeah, uh, Chevalier was older. Right. Oh he died. Oh Chevalier died in seventeen ninety nine. Anyway, uh, we kind of chased that rabbit off the path. But anyway, I, I just wanted to name this article first of all because if we're gonna shout, if we're gonna begin to pay more attention to the historical black people. Um, in classical music, especially over in Europe, yes, is one conversation where they actually aspiring to whiteness. Mm. We can have that conversation sometime. But if we're going to be naming the people, let's at least name them. Thousands demand memorial for Beethoven's African violinist. Right, is they didn't even put that. In, they didn't even put that, the guy's name in the in the headline. And we need to normalize saying these people's names if we're going to allege to be given some equity to. You should read history. the comments though. The oh, comments, the comments are, under here. The, oh, the comments are spicy. The com No, it's not spicy. It's just that. This this seems to be where the the anti woke culture, as they call themselves, you know, there's no supremacy here. This isn't racist, you know. Come on, let's let's just all enjoy Wagner and Beethoven. Huh. Well, hopefully that plaque gets put up. That that's something, right? Let's do. Let's Racism hope. will be cured when that plaque is put up. <laughs> let's just get it done, and then we can stop. <laughs> Here's Here's a little bit of that. I'm, I need to stop calling it. I think we all need to stop calling it the Kreutzer Sonata. Call it the Bridge and Tower. And just call it the Bridge Tower Sonata. So all here's right. a little bit of the Bridge Tower Sonata, the so-called Kreutzer Sonata, to get us into our last accidental. All right, rounding out the accidentals for this first movement, I'm going to give a sharp to uh, some more contemporary black men of the past. So we go from Chevalier de Saint-Georges to George Bridgetower to Earth, Wind & Fire and the Isley Brothers. Of course, it's the natural progression. <laughs> first of all, well, what, what about that? I mean... I think there could be something uh, that there could be a connection there when we're talking about 
again, classical music by black men of the past. Yes, it's not too much of an argument between Bridge Tower and Chevalier. When we consider, as we say week after week, affirming the Negro spiritual as American classical music, what it grew and evolved into, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Isley Brothers, that soul, early R&B, obviously, Mm -hmm. is uh, deeply entrenched in blackness. Mm -hmm. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, even a type of, of classical uh, black American music. I think so anyway, based on the, the response to, to the uh, event, the Versus event last night. Can you imagine going from Chevalier de Saint-Georges to Beethoven's Kreutzer into the Isley Brothers and then cap it off with the horn section in Boogie Wonderland? That's my title. That would of be a symphonic. Station. That would be a symphonic. There we are. <laughs> symphonic poem. When yeah. I um, so I'll I'll post a, a link to this. Of course, if you don't know, um, verses is something that was born from the pandemic, getting people some sort of concert entertainment experience while we're at home. Uh, the thing has evolved and featured all sorts of incredible artists. And last night, April fifth. Uh, April 4th, what's today? Yeah, April 4th last night. Um, Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, hosted by Steve Harvey, came and uh, took us down black memory lanes of music. And his periwinkle suit. Uh, <laughs> for Easter, of course. You got to show off the Easter suits. Um, 700,000 people were in the Instagram Live alone. When I logged into it, there's a Triller app that a lot of people watch it through, but just sitting there holding their phone to their face were 700,000 people. I think there's something to be said about that in itself, getting a large listener base um, while people are washing dishes or taking a walk or driving the car. That's one thing. 700,000 people with their phone in their hand based on what you're doing. That's some impact, isn't it? That's some reach. And these are artists who uh, are, you know, Contemporary, their their mm-hmm. music spans back, and mm-hmm. uh, and the and the young people are still interested. When you think of those two bands, those two groups, Isley Brothers, Earth, Wind, and Fire, is there one maybe you're more familiar with whose catalog? I don't I don't know very much about the Isley Brothers at all. Yeah, but I, um, now I showed you a, an Isley Brothers. Um, how can I say operetta before you did <laughs> before we started mm-hmm. recording? Mm-hmm. A lot of people were bringing up the music video to uh, Contagious. Yep. What do you think of? Okay, so the libretti aside, <laughs> what do you think of the concept of taking some sort of very story esque presentation and putting that? on the stage and it's not orchestra it's not you know classical it's the r&b it's the soul sound but we're still getting the sets we're still getting the costumes the drama the all of that it could work right cuckoldry is not new (laughs) wait cuckoldry cuckoldry but this isn't it's not only about the love aspect well you said contagious though are we not talking are we talking about just in general or are we talking about that video well with contagious as an example so even the story the contagious storyline of course for folks who don't know is somebody cheating and running up on them or whatever but the general aesthetic of a modern day situation maybe somebody cheating on you maybe something maybe the cookout maybe a game of spades you know are you gonna the musical you know but the musical setting is 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 r&b i feel like that is what we need to be moving toward when we talk about opera new opera but maybe maybe they're not gonna stand there going back and forth at each other like that for that long (laughs) they're gonna (laughs) throw hands long before uh, so you've obviously never seen a mozart opera because they do that they're just singing in those 
you know, and that style. Um, and, right. And so the, and the if we're going to update forward. it, if we're going to update it, let's update the whole thing then. And even even when we get into the storyline of Contagious, how ridiculous it is. The plot to Marriage of Figaro mm-hmm. is about somebody, mm-hmm. oh, I get to sleep with your wife before the wedding night and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And all of the tomfoolery that happens therein. I really don't think <laughs> there's much of a difference. Again, contagious as the example, as a ridiculous example, but I don't know. I, I think some of the uh, the tried and true operas are just as silly and just as whimsical, and we could uh, we we could update it that way and get an R and Bopra on the stage or something. Coin a that. contagious. <laughs> get that website. What about Earth, Wind, and Fire? What do you think about when you uh, think about that that uh, that ensemble, Earth, Wind, and Fire? September. Yeah. One Come on, I mean, that, that is the track. Who doesn't sing along with that one? And it's really been passed down over the generations because it's one of those marching band classics. So this is a, a composition that uh, most of us marching band folks have played and learned. Do you remember? The tune that I wanted to uh, bring up to uh, get us out of this first movement is an earth, wind, and fire joint called In the Stone. Do you remember that one, In the Stone? That's on the, I forget the name of the album, but uh, After the Love is Gone is on that release too. Mm, Yeah, that's a great song too. But first and foremost, you know how I am about song openings. So it has that really strong drum kick. When I was in school, In the Stone was one of the tunes during football season that only the upper band, the upper classmen were allowed to play because the band director wanted y'all to put some respect on this composition. And I think the more music teachers we have treating this music like this, the more we can bridge that gap between the so-called classical audiences and everyone else. Because as we saw from this versus event, the people are there. If we can get those folks to see the uh, classical, the instrumental ensembles putting the same respect on it, that's a step closer to diversifying the audiences, even if we don't put, you know, uh, contagious-inspired operas (laughs) on the stage. Anyway, let's listen to a bit more of this in the stone as we transition into movement two. Garrett, how many times have you listened to an artist's second or third effort after the first release didn't really sit with you? Hmm, that's a good question. There aren't a lot of artists, considering my age, that I've been around for third or fourth releases. I mean, Beyonce, my favorite, I think she's on, they're going to get on me, but quickly, I think she's on her sixth or seventh project. So I, I have that as a fan to look at. But there aren't. But you were a fan from day one, though. Right. And and I was all of 13 or 14 years old, you know, so there aren't a whole bunch of artists, unfortunately, whose catalogs um, I was there for. I can look in retrospect and, and listen back, but I think it's a different experience than being there when the music came out and, and watching sure. the evolution, right? Well, Valerie June has a new release that came out in January, and uh, I was late getting to it because, you know, I heard her first one and it didn't stay with me. And I know that she's... And this was when it came out. This was like in the moment? Or... Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, three, four years ago, something like that. But um, I got to, uh, a chance to listen to her latest release, The Moon and Stars, Prescriptions for Dreamers. 
And I thought, okay, it's been getting some really good buzz and things like that. And I read uh, a couple reviews on it. So I was listening to it the last couple days. And I have to agree with one of the reviews that said it seemed as though she had stepped into a, a fuller version of herself. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that more realized. It, it was more realized. Yeah. Yes, that, that's a, a great way to put it. Um, and talk about a combination of, of these different arts, you know, and um, maybe opera and operetta will look different and with a, a, a different confluence of ingredients. Right. So on this album, Valerie takes not only her own guitar playing, uh, incidentally, April is National Guitar Month. Um, she's a she's a really talented guitarist. She has that roots blues alt country sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. Shout out Rissy Palmer from a couple opuses ago. But she also has uh, you can call them. Let's go ahead and call them compositions because she brings in strings uh, throughout the whole album on different tracks. Uh, even the first one, the opening track called "Stay," has a nice string arrangement in it. But I have to tell you something, I'm a little bit challenged. I was listening to this mainly through headphones. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of tracks that seemed like Valerie's vocals were buried, that I had trouble hearing what she was saying. And uh, the uh, producer is Jack Splash. He's worked with a lot of uh, all sorts of famous people. Um, In 2019, a track of note with Tank and the Bangas. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's been around. And I was just wondering if that was a choice, if I was just hearing yeah, it. Yeah, you say he didn't do such a great job mixing this one. <laughs> uh, unknown, because I was listening to it in the headphones. But it sounded all right when we played it in the room here earlier, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, I think that that's important to remember that maybe you should listen to something on a couple different sound sources. Yeah, to see yeah that's for sure. That if it's all right, because then you come up to uh, the single. The big single off right. the new release. And her voice is just right out there, clear as a bell, and and uh, and again, a really nice uh, string section put together in the track. Call me a fool. Call me a fool. So uh, um, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to her previous two releases with new ears i think you know and and maybe on a record rather than listening to it through spotify in my headphones you know yeah yeah i i know there are a lot of folks who might not know valerie june by name if you've never heard that name before uh, she's another example of just how dynamic black music is and how dynamic black musicians are definitely go uh read about valerie june and um check out that uh, new release you said it was called uh the Moon and Stars, Prescriptions for Dreamers. And speaking about reading up on Valerie June, she's also an author, and she has a virtual book event tomorrow, the 6th. Just look at Twitter, at Strand Bookstore. Uh, you're going to have to go and get the time. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't write the time down, but she's doing a, uh, a virtual book event. So she's an author as well. I'm sure most people will have heard this after that's done, but yeah. Go follow her and do all that. <laughs> um, 
Scott, you do a great job of uh, putting me on to music that I didn't know. And a few weeks ago, you gave me a couple records. One was Paul Ropes, and I haven't listened to that one yet. But I did put on uh, the other one you gave me uh, featuring uh, the Howard Roberts Chorale uh, with some African drumming. I wasn't really um, expecting to use it for anything beyond just, you know, Sunday morning vibes when I'm trying to listen to my most classical music. So putting some Negro spirituals on, Mm -hmm. I put this one on and the African drums start to get to going on top of these uh, Negro spirituals. And I know that it said that on the cover of the album, but I guess I just did not make the connection. So I'm listening and and that's starting to sound groovy. I'm seeing uh, Dell's head bopping as he's doing <laughs> some work at the table as we hear these uh, Negro spirituals with these drums. And it got me to thinking, Scott, how incredible, maybe even a little heady, a little academic to think about these two musical traditions, both of which born from blackness, but that, in essence, being the only thing that ties them together. Some, some, uh, one thing that I think we take for granted is that in the Negro spiritual, there was actually, by that point, no connection for those people to the motherland. Their mm-hmm. culture had been mm-hmm. stripped, separated from families, so they codified this thing amongst themselves. Of course, we can say that back for eons, for African drumming, so when you put those two things together two things that come from completely different experiences and yet fit together perfectly because of blackness. I think that was a very incredible idea for whoever sat down at the table and said, hey, Mm. we should do this. And it gave birth to this record. I was afraid that it was only going to be available on vinyl, but I actually did find it um, on the internet. So there's a... That's amazing. You're kidding. It's on the... uh, I'll I'll put that on the Triloquy Tracks uh, playlist and all that. And here I thought I was giving you some rare gold that it wouldn't be available anywhere else. I mean, to me, it is. When you when you handed me the album, I was like, "Wow, why would Scott give this to me? This is great." But I'll take it. So, <laughs> well, I saw it. I saw it. I thought of you, and I got it. Yeah. So there you go. So I'll I'll have that on the uh, Trilocue Tracks playlist. My favorite flip on here, and I, I like to call these flips, maybe even remixes of Negro spirituals, is one called "Keep Your Hand on the Plow." Here's a little bit of that. Nora, Nora, let me come in. Those old fastening the windows pin. Keep your hand on the plow. Hold on. Hold on. Nora said you done lost your track. Can't plow straight and keep it looking back. Keep your hand on the plow. Hold on. Keep your hand on the plow, steal away that we heard um, a little bit of earlier and, and many, many, many others are, of course, among uh, many Negro spirituals and traditional black songs that uh, have inspired Will Lieberman over the, the ages. His new release called Dreams of a New Day features songs by black composers, some new um, in my conversation with him. 
we talk about Damien Sneed. Huge shout out to Damien Sneed. We also spend a bit of time talking about uh, the historic folks like uh, Harry uh, Thacker Berlay or Henry Thacker Berlay, as you'll see sometimes. Um, but the project centers around um, a poem that he found in the process of doing research and figuring out everything for this album, a poem that tells the story of a black mother um, denying her kids the opportunity to go march on the streets during the civil rights movement because it was a little too dangerous, mm-hmm. sending them to church instead. And they're going to church um, being their death, you know, specifically mm. the Birming, uh, the bombing of the church in Birmingham that uh, killed those little girls. So there's a piece of music that um, speaks to that history as well. Really um, incredible conversation uh, with Mr. Liverman. I'll have more information on him um, in the description of this. Um, to transition us into my conversation with him, I, I wanted to share a little bit of that piece of music inspired by that grim bit of history. Um, the tune is called Birmingham Sunday. So uh, Will and I sort of just jump in uh, talking about the concept of the album um, and and go on from there. So I hope you enjoy. This is my conversation with Will Liverman to get us there. Here's an excerpt from a piece of music from his new album, Dreams of a New Day, called Birmingham Sunday. And I can't do much more than to sing your song. I'll sing it so softly it'll do no one wrong. And the choir keeps singing of freedom, and the choir keeps singing of freedom. You know, this art form of opera is so Eurocentric and so old, and you know, and it wasn't, it's, it was something that, you know, really originated that wasn't for Black people. You know, um, and, and so that's part of the the issue and the challenge is to to break down these these barriers. And that's a term I always say, but it's very true, especially when it comes to to uh, making change in the opera world and why you know we're so kind of far behind. It's you know it's hard um, for people to wrap their heads around black leads in these in these old stories that we've that are told, you know, time and time again, you know, written hundreds of years ago and to really, you know, make change and to tell, you know, keep the, the standard operas and include us, but also tell new stories. That's my thing is because that's, you know, how can you bring in, how can we bring in a diverse audience if we're not telling stories that are relatable, that, that have some sort of connection, you know, um, to really, to, to include and to diversify the audience, um, and, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, that's part of my mission of, of making change in this in this business. And I think it's important to note that when you say it's hard for people to picture that black lead, I mean, I think that is probably hard for folks to wrap their minds around um, as far as the traditional white audience. But some of us black Ooh. folks, too, can't imagine a, a black person on an opera stage in a, in a leading role. How, how do you how do you balance both of those realities as you approach yeah. opera? It's it's a, it's very interesting because you know you hit the nail right on the head because me growing up in Virginia I didn't know like anything about opera like that's not something as a black kid you know I grew up with gospel music and you know R B and so you know opera isn't something I'm gonna be like oh yeah I'm going on Spotify listen to Mozart <laughs> Magic you know like we didn't grow up around it so like 
to witness it and to see people on the stage who looked like me, you know, like Lawrence Brownlee, Denise Graves, when I got into opera, I was like, huh, that's very, we you know, it's just something that was mind boggling to see and to hear this different type of singing, you know, and you know, to see a black lead on stage. Um, and so in a way, you know, it was inspiring to be like, okay, you know, to, to see that, to know that, okay, maybe this is something that I could have an opportunity to do. Um, but even then, you know, the places that I have performed, I'm all, you know, I'm normally one or of a few people of color, sometimes the only one mm -hmm. in a cast. Um, and you feel that weight of having to represent the entirety of, you know, of, you know, represent all black artists who are not there at that company with you because you're the only one. So your, your skin color walks in the room before you're, before you even open up your, the, before you even sing, you know? Um, and I feel that energy when I'm, when I, when I perform on stage, um, and you know, it's like, you feel like it's an uphill battle almost that you're having to prove your, your worth and like prove why you, you know, got this role in, in, and in that, you know, um, yeah. So, so does being among the few or, or, you know, more times than not, I would imagine being the only mm -hmm. one, does that require, placating to those white sensibilities because if we were all amongst ourselves if we were at the cookout for example there would be one energy around us does being in those spaces in your uh, in your experience require a a white centered sort of code switched approach oh i have i mean yeah you know you have to be i, I always feel that i you know really can't be my authentic self and like like i'm around my family at thanksgiving or whatever because when you're the only one, that's just that, you know, kind of you just get blocked off in a way and you feel kind of contained like you can't, you know, you have to kind of tone down your blackness in a way, um, especially around the, you know, to be, you know, completely honest. I mean, that's just how I um, when I first started in the business and trying to, like, make a name for myself and please people and get the jobs. That's how I felt now I feel now that I'm more confident in who I am and, you know, what my mission is like you know, being, you know, firm footed and planted and saying, you know, this is, you know, who I am as a person and being less apologetic and less, you know, uh, keeping myself like in some, some box, like I have to, you know, compensate or something like that. But I've, I, you know, you always feel that if you're, if you're all, I mean, I, other black artists can say the same, you know, when it's, you're the only one in the room, all eyes are on you, you know, like, and you have to, there's that pressure of um, having to, to be liked and, you know, put on the, the show, you know, um, and the representation, you know, your rep, you feel like the, the, that weight of the representation. So how does all of that relate to your latest project is really exploring the intersection of black history, black so-called classical music history and your career is, is, mm -hmm. uh, is that a response? Is that um, a way of laying a path down? How, how does, you know, the white centeredness of your career relate uh, to the work that you've put into this very black centered project? Yeah. I mean, it had a lot to do with it, honestly, you know, I wanted to to start, you know, as I was gaining traction in my career, I wanted to do more than just have a career and just make it, you know, I mean, of course, it takes a lot of energy to just be an opera singer and to, to mm -hmm. get your foot in the door. But like, once you're in the door, it was important for me to be an advocate for uh, change and diversity and inclusion. So 
I wanted to make an album that highlighted black composers um, for their, I mean, it's just a small sample, of course, for the, the many, many works, not even art song, but like or orchestral chorus, but like using what I, my voice, what I had to say to highlight black composers for their contributions to our song, because, you know, most, you know, we don't hear about these composers in our schools. We are not, we're not taught that. We're not taught about the great influence, you know, black composers have had on, on Western music. Um, and oftentimes it's overlooked and skipped, you know, so in a way, you know, this project was a response to that and a response to being, um, I feel like, you know, responsibility to, to, to highlight these things and to continue to tell um, uh, black stories and the uh, letting people know about, you know, the black experience. I wonder what you think about the response, because you've, you know, been sharing this with a lot of people. It's been very, very mm -hmm. successful. It's, you know, it's a positive mm -hmm. response from my perspective. Does mm -hmm. that speak to this moment in time? Do you, does the response, the positive response match what you expected? Would you have always expected a, a, a positive response out of this type of work? I don't think so because I feel, I mean, well, I, I wanted, of course, the best for the project and wanted to put my best foot forward with it. But I think, you know, the response has been so great and it's gotten a lot of attention because of, unfortunately, the events of, you know, the pandemic. Everyone's at a standstill. We were still able to record the album, which was great. Um, but then people are sitting around, you know, like in, um, with all that at a standstill. Plus, you add in the George Floyd killing over the summer, which uprooted a lot of things in the classical world and, and starting discussions on, uh, you know, what can we do to make change in our in our industries and in our companies? And along came you know, this project that we had that we had started uh, in the works like two years ago. But just the timing of it and releasing it during Black History Month, I think, you know, really the, all those things combined, I think, helped. Um, I mean, not to like discredit what we did, but right. I think it just it. <laughs> Um, it further it put all of that you know up on a uh, place of vis like really clear visibility and you know people responded well to it. <clears throat> yeah. I've created a lot of things in my life, but I've never done an album. Certainly, of course, not in a in a pandemic. And I really appreciate the we mm. that that you keep using. You know, and in, in, mm. in the footage that I've I've seen, mm. you know, of this process, folks are wearing masks, and it seems like a mm. huge sort of production. How how did you yeah. already? How did you put all of that together? Did you already have a team assembled? Did you have to go one by one? What was that process? Yeah, um, I got to give a shout out to Sadie Records for making that possible. The, the crazy thing was we had had a few setbacks, um, one of which had didn't have anything to do with the pandemic. So we rescheduled during the pandemic and we couldn't get a recording venue because they had changed the rules of COVID. And it was like around June, July, where things just kept changing and changing. And so we nailed down this venue in, in Goshen, Indiana. Um, and Sadie put together everything and, you know, got us in and, you know, we went over all the rules and regulations with COVID and we were able to, to get that venue for a few days and, and knock everything out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the stuff that's on the project. Uh, you know, I take for I, well, I found that I took for granted, certainly in the earlier parts of my career, what folks white, black uh, and, and otherwise don't know about mm -hmm. black music. Um, with that in mind, could you speak to Harry Burley and his significance mm -hmm. 
to American music. You know, I, I saw that. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll talk about Damien Sneed in a in a minute. You know, a composer mm -hmm. who's getting a lot of attention, and of course, more and more people know the name Margaret Bonds. Mm -hmm. But but Harry Thacker Berlay is a name that I think a lot of people mm -hmm. a don't know and b don't understand the true significance of his legacy. Yeah, I mean, when I was we were putting this album together, you know the the commission was the focal point to black churches, but immediately hmm. we wanted to highlight. I mean, we had we can't for me. I couldn't do a songs with black composers without Burley because he's the to me like the father of, um, or a, just a pioneer of black music and what he did. You know, his grandfather you know was a slave and he took those songs and and compose them in the way where black opera singers of the time could have careers singing negro spirituals um and not only that yeah people don't know his work with dvorak and how dvorak came right. to new york city and uh dvorak was so impressed with uh the music the black music that burley introduced him to and it influenced dvorak's you know hits and you know i didn't know we didn't for me, at least, you know, I didn't know these things. Um, and, I, you know, that's part of the, you know, big reason why, you know, Burley is so important. I mean, and there's so many works of his that are that are great. For me personally, I love the, the five songs of Lawrence Hope, so I wanted to, to feature that. Um, but he's, you know, a giant in, in uh, the world of, of classical music and just doesn't get any uh, enough attention, enough respect and how he, you know, influenced a lot. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned um, Berlay's relationship with Dvorak because we will mm -hmm. pull up that Dvorak quote all the time where he talked about those uh, Negro melodies as being foundational to a true and noble school of music in America. You know, we'll talk about that, but we'll leave mm -hmm. out the name Jeanette Thurber, the woman who brought him over here. We'll leave out Harry Thacker mm -hmm. Berlay, you know, who taught mm -hmm. this stuff to him in the first place. So I was mm -hmm. so glad to, so phenomenally glad to see that name uh, on this album. Mm -hmm. You mentioned mm -hmm. marketing this project point this project uh, mm -hmm. to the church. And I'm sure, you know, mm -hmm. as you've mentioned, you know, most black folks uh, our age mm -hmm. and around grew up in the church or have some proximity to the church. Has it, yeah. uh, has it been an issue of traversing in those black spaces, the black church, the mm -hmm. concept of bringing something in that is black, but is seemingly mm -hmm. white? Is that a conversation you've had? I actually haven't. It's <laughs> 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 a very interesting point. I haven't I, I mean, maybe best, maybe it. based on technique of the voice yeah. or 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 a presentation of the music. It's not exactly. Well, I don't know the type of black church you grew up in, but it's yeah. not the running and hollering and flipping that <laughs> <laughs> that that I know. But rather something a little more. Uh, I hate to use the word polished, but something a little more subdued. I'll yeah. Say. I mean, is yeah. that is that a, you say that's an idea you hadn't really thought about? No, no. Um, you know, cause I gave, I commissioned this for, for Sean and, you know, I love his, uh, style and like how he just tells a story with, you know, this very heavy text of Bow to Birmingham and rain that was, right. we commissioned Marcus Amaker to, to write rain specifically for the, uh, the, the cycle. Um, and yeah, you know, it's like you think of black. I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal church too, so I okay, get, so I know. What's I understand up. <laughs> that. You get to church at nine thirty for Sunday school. You leave around about four thirty. Four thirty on Tuesday, know. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you're, you know, you 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 uh, said it really well. You know, it is like a, it is more of like a polished sort of experience that's sort of drawn out and, and really takes you through a journey. And Sean, you know, he. 
I love it because he does, you know, he uh, he quotes some some hymns here and there and within the piece, um, you know, on rain. Uh, Tis so sweet to just trust in Jesus was the the hymn that they sang after uh, the shooting. Mm-hmm. And they had their first, you know, sort of moral service for everything, uh, for everyone. Um, and they sang that hymn. Um, and he incorporates that in rain and, you know, and the amazing grace and the ballad of Birmingham. So those elements of, you know, church music are there just like, you know, slightly uh, they're there, but, you know, it's on the larger scale, like it's a, it's a different experience for sure. Yep. I mentioned uh, the name Damien Sneed a little earlier, one of the more contemporary yeah. artists um, on, mm-hmm. on this project. How does mm-hmm. the history of the spiritual, you know, we're talking about Burley, we've talked about um, the mm-hmm. Black Church, how does the history of Black music, the spiritual and everything around it, parlay to more contemporary uh, so-called classical music, contemporary church music, contemporary black music. Are, is Should that all, in your opinion, um, be served on the same dish? Or are we talking about two different styles, two different types of music? I, you know, for me, in my mind, I, I love, I mean, of course, you know, when you think about spirituals and the, the horror of which those that music came about mm-hmm. and how that eventually turned into gospel and blues, um, you know, music is forever changing and evolving. And I think this can, you know, contemporary writers like Damien are so brilliant because, you know, he's incorporating lots of different styles in his writing. You know, he's obviously a big gospel guru who works with all the greats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got introduced to his music through Lawrence Brownlee's uh, spiritual album, which is just amazing. You know, he did their reimagined spirituals that, that some that really go to church, but in a way that's just different, you know, it's, it's, set i mean it's, it's classically sung but you feel that church feel in it and so i love you know these genre blending uh type of things that you know incorporate different um styles and you know not viewing them as something separate like no understanding for sure the roots of where this mu- where music comes from um but you know i i uh, i appreciate damien i love his writing because he's you know, he's blues, he's gospel, he's classical, and he's able to, like, really blend jazz even, you know, able to blend all that together and into his his aesthetic and style, which is pretty dope. Yeah, huge, huge shout-out to him. When you, yeah. you when you mentioned, you know, the horrors from which the spirituals came, you reminded mm-hmm. me of something. I, I had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Louise Toppin last week, and one mm-hmm. of the things mm-hmm. that uh, she mentioned that I hadn't thought about was that one of the challenges for the spiritual and other Black music was that Black folks weren't trying to relive that pain or even pimp out that pain. Even outside mm-hmm. of music these days, we've had uh, the young Marseille Martin talk about how black pain is not allowed in her office that's not the type of content she's creating what do you think Mm -hmm. about that idea remembering the past not forgetting the past not trying to relive the past um but -hmm. at the same time not being bound by black pain in our art man what a great question and for me it definitely is a a line because i think on one end yeah that for me the, the negro spiritual of course like singing these now i didn't go through any of those horrors or anything but like i think it's you know the paying your respects remembering where you come from and where like just the history of our country um and paying homage to that but also like you said i'm you know part of my work too is 
telling stories that or wanted to tell stories. I mean, that's I mean, this album is pretty serious with the black mm-hmm. experience because, it, you know, I think there was something that was really on my mind a lot with all the shootings we're seeing of black people in the streets and people say, oh, racism is a feeling and something. Oh, it's, it's not political. It's not a feeling like this is these are the stories like this mm-hmm. is what happened. Um, but also like understanding like there's a lot to celebrate and just the the joys of being black in America, too. So I think it's very important that we, you know, remember where we come from and, you know, the struggles that it took to get where we are, but also having and celebrating black music and black uh, artists who have, you know, uh, made gave the country a soul. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. And of course, the yeah. living artists who've done the legwork of, you know, doing the research yeah. and, and working to put this stuff on the stage. Before we talk yeah. about um, the poem and the concepts behind Birmingham Sunday, I, I wonder if there are other um, discoveries mm-hmm. uh, that, that you mm-hmm. found along the way of doing this research. We've already affirmed that there's mm-hmm. so much we don't learn in school. Much of what I've <laughs> learned has been on my own. Were there things that you learned um, in the process mm-hmm. of this that you didn't know about Black music or American history? Gosh, a lot. I mean, it was that was one of the beautiful things of just deep diving into all this music is going through. I mean, there's so much music, of course. If I want the album be like nine hours long, if I, if I want to be here <laughs> right. by Florence Price and Leslie Adams song cycle, I mean, all those guys and, and artists were so brilliant. Um, but for me, I, I learned, um, you know, I learned a lot about Burley and Margaret Bond's work with Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, you know, the, the mind blowing thing is, I mean, these, these guys, these people are writing brilliant music and then marching and fighting for civil rights at the same time, like right. fighting for justice in a world where they're, they're getting hosed and, and people are coming after them and getting called the N word and all these things like, and then taking that and responding to it and, and choosing to, to write and, and uh, create art and, and move the culture forward. So like just think stories like that and doing research like that, just, you know, really was um, an inspirational Thing for me to to go down and um the birmingham sunday um i just stumbled upon that because i was watching this documentary uh four little girls spike mm-hmm. lee's uh, documentary hbo and I, th- I think it was like the end of the beginning of the song they played this birmingham sunday um by uh, richard farina well, i think it was like joan ba- uh joan bay's uh, recording of it right and the thing that just struck me is like you know it, they said the names of the girls, you know, oftentimes we talk about, you know, the, the, I don't know, in songs, I just never hear the name, like names of the victims. And there's something that just struck me to my core. And it was something that I just knew I had to end the, the album with. I don't know. For, for yeah. folks who don't know about that infamous um, Sunday, how, what, what's your, well, first of all, what is the story and B, what is your, approach to telling the story um, verbally or even musically considering the idea again of black pain and, and trauma mm-hmm. and, and those things. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, in that um, 1963 bombing of 16th street Baptist church was a, a, you know, a racist act by members of the KKK who, who bombed the church and these four young, young girls happened to be inside and, and they were killed in the blast. Um, and, you know, I guess there are two, ver- you know, the, the Battle of Birmingham poem from Two Black Churches struck me because it talks about, you know, from the mom's perspective of, you know, the, the little girl 
it's from the perspective of a little girl and the mom. And, you know, the girl saying, you know, I want to go and march for freedom. I want to go march the streets of Birmingham. And the mom keeps saying, no, you know, it's not safe. I'm, I'm afraid these things are going to happen to you. I'm afraid you'll get shot. I'm afraid all this. But you could go to church where I feel like you're going to be safe. And it's a place of refuge and peace. And, you know, growing up in the church, you know, that's that struck just a major thing with me. It just was so heartbreaking because we know what happens. I mean, like the place where she thought was going to be most safe, the, you know, was a place where, you know, that was the end of her life. Um, and just really, you know, for me, this experience of Black pain, just I allowing myself to really go there. And it was hard, you know, in Ballad Birmingham or Birmingham Sunday um, to live with these truths and to say these names. Um, but with the goal being to also, you know, to indicate past and present injustices um, and providing an opportunity to refocus and reframe, um, you know, the the American promise of um, equality, um, which is very important. Um, and yeah, that's that was uh, that's that story just really you know, struck me. And then Sean, of course, for the, the two black churches had the idea to do a parallel to the Charleston shooting in 2015 to just show that, you know, like the, the poem rain indicates, you know, black people's inability to stay above water sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like we're continuing to see these things happen time and time again. You know, it's like, you know, we were, we're constantly having to fight for, for freedom and, and no justice, no peace is a, 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 you know, something that has been throughout our history books over and over again. Um, so that was, you know, part of the album too, was just really highlighting the black experience, but also in a way celebrating still black composers and their, their contributions to the music. Yeah. I, I also found that story very striking when the mother, you know, thinks that uh, those little girls will be safe in church. It begs the question, where are we safe? Unfortunately, you know, in recent years, we've seen um, from the stories of uh, Botham Jean and Breonna Taylor, you know, we aren't even safe inside of our homes oftentimes, which which is, is right. very concerning. You know, from my perspective, mm -hmm. the white supremacy that maintains that violence against Black folks and other people of color is the same mm -hmm. white supremacy that keeps the concert halls safe because those people are safe in those spaces. <laughs> the, the, the way they set mm -hmm. it up, even culturally, they are mm -hmm. safe in that way. Mm -hmm. Is is, mm -hmm. is that a is that a fair statement? And what are we going to do with these institutions mm -hmm. if if we recognize that that white mm -hmm. supremacy that kills us maintains them? Mm -hmm. Wow, I think that's very. I mean that that's that's our whole fight really with uh, trying to make real change. You know, go beyond just the statements of, uh, you know, I'm diverse. You know, we're a diverse company. Look at our lineup. It's so you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, what are we really doing? You know. I think, and you're right, you know, these, these institutions were meant to keep us out. Um, and we, we found a way in, but still like the history books, you know, like we have to just take a look at history and see how that is just deep seated. Um, and something that was designed to, to keep us out. Um, and that is the, the, the major change that we have to do. And a lot of that, I mean, you know, the arts organizations are, are nonprofit. Um, so, you know, black folks, they got money, you know, like we have money, <laughs> but folks are not going to support things that they don't see, you know, people that look like them or see things that are happening to, to support, you know, these companies. And really it's the, you know, the donors that give a lot of money to companies that make 
decisions behind closed doors and they decide we want this singer, we want that person, you know, let's do this. Like companies, um, you know, are, are in some ways at the mercy of the, who, the folks that are supporting these companies. So that's the real change mm-hmm. is the support. Um, and the folks that are giving millions of dollars, you know, um, and we have to find a way to, you know, get also on the other side of not just performing, but also an artistic and general directors, people that are in power to, to really, I've never done an audition. I've maybe not 1% out of 99% I've done, you know, most of the time I'm doing an audition where I'm looking at a panel of folks that don't look like me, you know? So again, you know, that when you don't have that, it's that feeling of isolation or feeling of your color walks in the room before you do and you feel you have to be great and mm-hmm. excellent at all times. You know, when you perform, you you can't miss. You really can't. Um, if you if you want to have a, a career in an opera specifically, because it's an uphill battle. And that's like the whole point of, you know, dreams, this thing, this idea of always dreaming. I have a dream, 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 like. One day we want to stop dreaming right. and live, <laughs> and live. <laughs> but we're not, I mean, we've made progress. Like my dad had to sit in a segregated bus and he had to deal with members of the clan. Like, I mean, not like, but I mean, there are areas that he couldn't go to at certain points because we grew up in Virginia. Um, and I don't have to deal with that. So like, I recognize that we have, you know, made progress, but we still have to know like we have a ways to go. And with that, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I'm going to try to pivot us to um, a little bit of joy. And when I think about black mm. joy, the first thing that popped into my mind was the kitchen, the black kitchen. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that's where we're going to go with with this metaphor that I'm going to try to build. So let's say COVID mm. uh, has been this time when the peach cobbler when the pound cake is is in the oven all of mm. these all of these panel discussions all of these convenings all of these projects have been the heat on that peach cobbler the world is beginning to open back up you know vac- vaccines are going around many um, arts institutions are announcing um, fall uh, announcing september openings mm. is it is the peach cobbler ready when all of these arts institutions open back up are we going to see a manifestation of what we've been talking about for over a year now due to the pandemic, due to the violence against black people, et cetera? Uh-huh. Wow. Now, you can, first of all, you got me thinking about peach cobbler. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, give me some ice cream. and got that melt on there. Oh, man. You know, to be completely honest, I really I'm hopeful. But it's like for me, it's one of those things that remains to be seen because, you know, it's that thing of. And we've had we've dealt with this before because you know George Floyd is one of a number of, of right. black killings where we always come to the forefront. Black Lives Matter, this and that, diversity, inclusion, and then once it all washes over, we go right back to our reg, you know our regularly scheduled programming. So I mean I hope that these companies that are you know really making statements and I you know I will say even now I've seen um, you know all these digital works and new works that are you know including and telling black stories and there's more i'm seeing it i'm seeing the change and i'm hoping that it is something that's long lasting when we're really out of the thick of things and people are going back you know into the theater and you know programming things that to me will really tell me you know who the folks that really are standing beside what they're saying and who decided like it was just a moment in time and now we're just going to go back to how we always did things you know yeah yeah so, i suspect yeah. that the peach cobbler has to go back in the oven for a little longer but we'll see yeah i guess we'll see. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> how can how can folks uh learn more about you and uh and support your work oh yeah um 
You can find me at uh, yeah, willliverman.com. Uh, there's three L's in Miller because that's a two L's and an L for Liverman. Willliverman.com. Um, and I have all my updates there and my happenings. Um, I, I wrote an opera uh, called The Factotum. And you, there's, uh, it's what's going to be, you know, uh, commissioned with lyric. And they, there's a documentary out called Creating the Factotum. And again, it's this idea of, you know, talking about black joy and, you know, just the positive things of, um, you know, it's an updated version or it's inspired by the Barbersville set in a black barbershop. And, mm, you know, okay. that's um, and that's something that I would also have been writing during this pandemic with uh, my collaborator, uh, Rocket Jackson. We both grew up together. Um, and so, yeah, you can find more in- info about that. It's called Creating the Factotum. Um, and yeah, details on my website for for upcoming things and exciting new projects that are in the works. And you know, I'm I'm really fired up to you know continue down this path and you know use my platform you know to to make the change with my voice. You know, I am quite interested in that opera. When I think about the English translations to the famous Largo Alfactotum, where the character is singing about you know he got folks over here, he can do this, he can do that. That that yeah. lends itself to the black barbershop. We all know the black barber who think he can do it all, who thinks yeah, he can do it all. <laughs> yeah, right. I picked my hair out because I'm I'm headed to the barbershop right after this because this hair has gotten so I had to pick it out and it was it was rough, but you know it's but it's true. It's just like that's you know there's so much of an opera could be easily created in the black i mean it's like a sitcom i mean see everyone has that black barbershop in their communities and it's more than a haircut you know it's a place of you know refuge for black people a place where we come in and just talk about everything you know like and and so we're excited to to uh keep developing the piece and and see where it goes and you know, it's just really we wanted to make a, a celebration of black music and the black experience, and you know, focus on the positive side of that. Um, and all the while bringing in, hopefully, you know, uh, continuing to bring in diverse audiences. Well, I'll, I'll um, leave us. I'll leave us with this as my final question for you. So you're you're heading yeah. to the barbershop. If you mm-hmm. have to convince all of those brothers to listen mm-hmm. to something from the catalog, from opera, what are you going to throw at them today? From ooh, from just <laughs> traditional opera, or, or or otherwise, or otherwise, what's oh, gonna what's gonna get opera. what's gonna get them interest into the opera house into the concert hall? Oh, oh gosh, that's a great question. There's so many things. There's a I don't know. There's a contemporary piece that we did, Charlie Parker's Yardbird, featuring Lawrence Brownlee, and there's this really cool duet, like jazz duet. That's like genre blending that I always love. That's like very exciting. Um, maybe some of that, maybe some like really high queen of the night stuff to show like, you know, the, the, you know, like opera singing is like a, almost like a sport, you know, it's mm-hmm. really, that was, you know, I fell in love with traditional opera because it was something that was just so otherworldly and different and unamplified and like, you know, larger than life. So, you know, I think we can really make change and obviously, you know, keep tell new stories and keep the traditional ones. Um, and we just have to get people in the door and make it, you know, um, something that is inclusive and creating that environment for people to, to, to come into the opera house. Um, cause I think it is really truly something that can be enjoyed by everybody.
Scott, I want to ask you what um, I rounded out my conversation uh, with Will with. So he was on his way to the barbershop as we were talking, and I asked him, you know, what what music would you bring into the barbershop to get those folks on to classical? The barbershop, of course, being the prototypical black meeting space where uh -huh. someone like Will is among his cohort. Mm -hmm. Wherever you are... Um, at least by perception among your cohort, maybe maybe uh, the gym or something. You know, what would you use <laughs> back in the CrossFit days? What would you use to get your uh, fellow CrossFitters interested in classical music? Considering that you're, you know, an advocate of it, that's that's what your job I thought, is. I thought that you were gonna. Say, I thought you were gonna say the green room with theater because that would be too easy. Um, if I were going to take in music, to, well, you want something that's going to get your your blood going and something that will propel you, right? Metamorphosis by Hinnemann. That's kind of rocking. You would, you would throw him to the Germans, huh? Or maybe some Stravinsky. Sure, sure. You're, so, so you're saying something that's going to, you know, uh, work with the activity Absolutely. Of, of working out. And, you know, let's face it. Um, I'm not, I don't always uh, do the forms correctly. So some Stravinsky with his asymmetrical sound here and there would kind of go well with, with you, my you tell the crossfitters i'm channeling something artful right now right. so <laughs> mind your business <laughs> just i tell them just go with me just 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 trust me <laughs> all right let's get into this triloquy well it's goodbye to the elevator music <laughs> all right cincinnati it is time for this town to get down so just sit right down relax open your ears real wide and say Give it to me straight, doctor. I can take it. Before we, before we get into what we're talking about, <laughs> give us a little bit of context of that transition that we just used from the show WKRP. <laughs> um, it starts off with a radio station that is under the Easy Listening banner. Um, they have uh, tracks like uh, Having My Baby, as performed by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Um, and the new station manor ha man manager has some ideas. He wants to change the format to rock and roll. And he gives Johnny uh, a stack of records and says, you can, uh, you can make that change now. Do whatever you want. Do it now. You can even say booger if you want. Because, of course, back then, you know, that was just a bad word. That would get you thrown out. Not, Say booger. Not everyone who listens to this was around for that show, so I just wanted to make sure we weren't booger. <laughs> leaving anybody behind. Okay, look. I thought that was an appropriate um, sort of callback to radio because the first thing I want to talk about this week on the Triloquy is my uh, presentation that I did for King FM over in Seattle. Now, this is not a drag. This is just me, you know, being being real. I tried to get a. I was trying so hard to get a job there before I came here in Seattle. Yep, and and I'm sure you would have taken it if you got it living anything, over there on the West Coast. Anything they had, if it was washing the windows, I would have went. So we like to think of Seattle as this liberal. Oh my gosh, no one here is racist. This is just where uh, progressives can go. I mean, yes, that it does have that sort of uh, reputation to an extent, right? I mean, it's certainly no one thinks of that as a, a conservative. Um, stronghold, no, right? No. Okay. So, in spite of all of that, we still have some of these 
unfortunately racist norms happening within the classical music infrastructures. I, I was called in to, you know, do a presentation during the staff meeting to talk about my work and, um, you know, just everything that, that has to do with, with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I like to end my presentations with something that is um, personal, something that really speaks to that community or, or whoever I'm, uh, you know, addressing. So for that day when I was given the presentation, I went to their playlist website where it had everything that was scheduled for that day and took a picture. I, I went on the internet and found a picture of each one of the composers for the whole day of programming. And I put all of those photos a in a collage on my final slide. And I let that be the end of my presentation as an example of what they are doing. And I you know, left that slide on the screen in front of their staff and asked simple questions like, is this your best effort? Is this your affirmation that Black Lives Matter? Is this your trying to engage new audiences? Is this how you recruit people like me to come and give my uh, uh, expertise as a, as a uh, on-air host or whatever? Whatever, and giving y'all cool points for having the black post. Is this how you do it? Is this is this your technique? And I didn't do that to be mean or to be ugly as much as just to show. I feel like when you have that visual, it makes it so much more obvious that you are censuring dead white European men and mm-hmm. everything you're doing. It's not like there was even a sprinkling of diversity in um, in their programming for that day. There were a few, I think there were about three women within 24 hours um leo brower afro-cuban composer was the only composer of color featured in those 24 hours um the uh the manager over there shout out to brenda uh when i sort of presented this slide her response was well our, our goal has always been to feature a woman composer or a composer of color during every radio shift but obviously we aren't meeting that mark so I named that and I shout them out. First of all, thank you again, (laughs) King FM, for supporting Triloquy. And I hope that visualization really is uh, the fire under someone's feet that uh, that needs to be there. Because at this point, as much as we're talking, you know, all these panel discussions, everything we've been doing over COVID, the black squares, 24 hours of all white composers is is that that's just that's just unacceptable how 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 can we accept that at this point i think it's time that we start to call those things out not as a means of being mean and ugly again but just to give a visual of uh of 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 the issue i think sometimes when we're saying things like we need to diversify or most of your programming is x it's one thing when we have the visual i think it's another thing. You saw the slide. I posted it yep. on my Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your thoughts? Do you think? What What are your thoughts about that approach to sort of getting a radio station to see what it's doing? The, the, isn't this what they hired you to do? Mm-hmm. To come in and do this? Okay. Well, um, <laughs> they should have known what they were getting. I think that it's. I think that it's absolutely fine for you to do it that way because some people need to see it, like you said, um, and obviously. I mean, but do, my question is, do you think it's that's that was an effective approach? I can go in there and yell, y'all are racist. Y'all need to diversify y'all's playlist. That's not what I did. I just showed a receipt. 
I showed them what you're doing and asked the questions. Is this your Black Lives Matter? Right. Is this your attempt at diversifying? You right. know, what do you think? Do you think that is a more effective approach? We're always talking about, you know, being heard and not just, you know, spitting off things to be fiery for the sake of, you know, getting people riled up. Is this the nice way to do it? Uh, it's a way. Uh, let me uh, let me ask you this: Did people blanch in the meeting? I didn't with... have I didn't have my screen on their faces because I wanted to keep a clear mind. Yeah, that's probably a good <laughs> so idea. I, so I just I, I let them have whatever facial reactions that they needed to have. So okay, uh, I'm I'm going to guess that there were probably a range of responses in that meeting from the positive to the not so positive. Mm-hmm. But um, I bet you it worked. Um, a lot of times people need to see it and they need to have it presented in a way that rings their bell a little bit. So if, if someone ends up feeling a little embarrassed because you show, brought up a playlist and went, look at what you did, well, that's you're confronting them with, with the receipt, right? Sometimes I... Sometimes I wonder if even that's enough because I'm going to go back next week and look at the playlist. I wonder how different it will be. Well, there's not a lot of people want to admit that they have the privilege or that they've missed the mark on something. It's, I, I understand that. It's hard to look at that and go, oh, geez. Yeah, you're right. It, yeah, defenses go up, don't they? Mm-hmm. I just wonder if they don't hear it or if, or if I mean, anyway. I think, that you, I think <laughs> that you probably started it, if not uh, helped propel it. You at least got them going in the right direction. I hope so. So, again... Shout out to y'all. This is not a this is not a drag King FM. This is show King FM as an example of how good intent, even in um, an area of the country uh, within a field that is supposed to be progressive, that is supposed to be leading the charge. How we uh, how how we have this, and it's just it, it's it's unacceptable. It's mm. unacceptable in twenty twenty one. If you are in charge of any sort of programming, the the summation of your work, whether that summation is a season, whether it's um, a day of programming, if you are in the fortunate position to be some sort of radio host or something and you program your own stuff in the summation of your daily block, you know, you need to look at what is there. And if it is all white, Mm. you need to change it, period, period. Okay. Um, the, the, The other thing I wanted to bring into you, Scott, you know, getting into this next triloquy. So considering how slowly things move. You can you can understand, and we've talked about this off mic, how frustrated I get sometimes and, and you can't help but to ask the question, should I just should I just stop? I know we had that spiritual earlier in this opus, keep your hand on the plow. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just want to take my hand off the plow. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if other people feel that way. And I want to give other folks the space to sort of uh, give their opinions on that. So this morning, <laughs> on Monday mornings, I tried to say hello to the people on my social media. I went on Facebook and typed um, the status. Have you ever thought about breaking up with classical music? Um, about 130 comments later, there are, there are lots of really interesting responses and lots of perspectives. Um, I wanted to ask you that. Have you ever thought about breaking up with classical music? What I think about breaking up with is broadcasting. Hmm, go and into that more. seeing as how when I'm broadcasting, most of the time it's classical music, that would be collateral damage from that breakup. Hmm. Um, I look, Garrett, I look forward to the time when I don't have to talk. If I were to, le- if I were to hit my numbers 
and or just decide that I was going to live a hermit and just cut grass over at Lake Phelan every day yeah. or something like that, um, I would probably spend 8, 10, 12 months quiet. Yeah. I would, I would try to not talk as much as I could. That would be my breakup. To just to, to get rid it's of the stre- broadcast. Yes, it's stressful. Altogether. All of it is stressful. Not not only at work when I'm announcing classical music, the network has hundreds of stations in tow. It's got a big ass. People are waiting for you to mess up, to oh, flame yeah. you on oh, social yeah. media or to write an email. And I get sick of it. Yeah, I get 100% sick of it. And then I come over here on the podcast and I get on an onslaught from a different direction. Sure. And that's just the that's just the way that it is. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't affect me and that doesn't mean that I don't want to press snooze on everything and just go and exist. Like you say, just go and be free. Yeah. Now, this is where I think Oh, I'm not done. The conversation gets a little you know, maybe there's some inner dissonance. So sometimes there is for me. You talk about what it would look like to break up with broadcast and why. You have not. So what? So what's keeping you in this relationship? The need to eat and pay my bills isn't that. That's 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 dark for me, and that's the space that I've been in. If the reason is money, if the reason is eating, if the reason is continuing to participate in capitalism, is it true? What does that mean? And that's sort of the what I've been pacing the floors with. You know, as as yeah. as people continue to think about, um, you know all of the difficulties of this time as we're getting out of COVID and, you know, what's going on in the world. I just want people to know that it's okay to kind of be in this space of trying to figure it all out. I think many of us are uh, uh, recontextualizing our lives. We all have a new world to look at and to deal with. So I think asking yourself those questions is okay. I think, um, Scott, you have to recognize, we were kind of talking about this over dinner, it's one thing to let go of a career that you know you've spent so much time with. It's another thing for a musician to let go of something that they have spent all of their life lives memories with. You know, mm-hmm. like it's hard for me I to see that. to think of a time before studying music, even before the bassoon, that study of music was there. So mm-hmm. when I come up, up across the question, you know, what if I just break up with classical music? It's a lot there. And um, like I said, I think it's okay to ask yourself that question. If you come out of that mental space sticking with it, I think, you know, you have done the right thing. I think it's good for us all to question, you know, what we're doing and how we're how we're spending our time. My question for you is, what made you post this question? Because I woke up this morning with a lot on my calendar Thinking about again the the King FM stuff when we're talking about you know the radio stations how there's so much work to do how there are um, so so many gradual shifts along the way of the big goals I think that uh, we have certainly that I have when it comes to a complete change and what we think of when we say the name the phrase classical music there just seem to be so many steps between here and there. Mm-hmm. It's easy to just be like, fuck it, I'm I'm just done. But what keeps me in it, Scott, and and this is what I would love for you to consider as well. If I'm just like, fine, 
I'm not making it any easier for the person who comes after me trying to do some of this work. I think of, well, who was just raising their voice and trying to shake things up in uh, classical music before? There were so many people. There are countless people. It would be even rougher for us to just sit down and leave the landscape a mess for the next person, mm-hmm. you know. So when it comes to you and broadcast, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not meaning to put you on the spot, but I hope that you would consider thinking, you know, yes, you can step back and give room to the person of color, the younger person. But what are you leaving? What sort of mess are you leaving for them to deal with? What yep. sort of audience yep. are you leaving for them to deal with? Yep. So. <clears throat> that's if I can uh, give anyone any words of of encouragement as far as staying in the game. Yeah, and 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 this is specifically to the allies and to the accomplices. I think it's very important to think about ways in which you can step back and offer room. Let's think about if we're stepping back and offering a situation, throwing in these people's laps something that we could play a role in making easier for them, making that transition something that is actually doable instead of putting someone in a position where they were set up to fail. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what I think sometimes when it comes to um, my relationship with radio. I feel like in, you know, in many ways, I could not be successful in the way I wanted to be successful. So moving forward, I hope other people will, you know, think about as as you move aside or or make way for the next generation, create these fellowships, create these positions, all of these uh, uh, statements about uh, pledging to hire, you know, more people of color. Consider spending some time thinking about the environment that you're bringing them into or that you're giving them. As you uh, as you make this room and figure out why you haven't broke up and broken up with classical music or whatever your your career is, but in all of that, I just want to again affirm it is okay to to have that thought. I think it's healthy to have that thought. Um, as we close up here, Scott, I want to just I I I'm hesitating because. It, it really does strike a chord with me. So I got in my email uh, the newsletter for the Tulsa Opera with what they're uh, coming up with this season with all of these black works. And mm-hmm. I see all of these names uh, that I celebrate, uh, many of which have been on Triloquy, and I'm happy that they are giving this platform. I find a bit of dissonance when I see announcements like those, knowing that there are composers like Daniel Bernard Remain, whose works were denied or set to the side for whatever reason. And I know that we've been talking about this for a few weeks now, but I just wanted to name that I think about the people who have been pushed aside a lot. When I'm critical of classical music organizations, even through the incremental positive changes that are being made. I'm thinking about all of the people who who had to be sacrificed along the way, who had to really uh, 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 deal with the, the brunt of some of these changes along the way. Yeah. So um, I hope everyone can just hang on. Shout keep, out DBR. Shout out to DBR. Keep your hand on the plow, and please don't take for granted that... Uh, you know, there's some people out here just really pushing and really trying in a in a in a very horrible. I won't say very horrible, but very difficult 
relationship that we justify the best way we can. My justification of being in any sort of relationship with that very problematic man named Classical Music is having a podcast to come talk bad about him every week. <laughs> <Can> you? <laughs> what about that? Having a podcast to talk bad about your spouse? Cla- classical Music is a man? <laughs> as problematic as classical music is, he would have to be you a man. You said it. You said it. <laughs> See y'all next week.